Last thing we're going to talk about is figures of speech. Now, why would we use figures of speech? Because figures of speech is what communicates emotion. Figures of speech is like, I could either say like, man, she just really made me sad. Or I could say, she broke my heart. Now, she didn't literally reach into my chest and pull it out and snap it in half. But it does communicate a lot more emotion than, I'm just really sad. Or, I'm so depressed, my bones are wasting away in my bed. That's what David says. You're like, no, no, they're not, David. That's so, you're so overdramatic. But he could just say, I was laying in bed sad. Like Cameron and Ferris, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> but when he says, my bones are wasting away and I can't even pick up the phone, like there's a greater intensity to depression. Okay? But mom, everybody's doing it. No, they're not. But you feel like they are. And it communicates the intensity a lot more. Our life would be pretty drab. We use this stuff all the time. Like, I'm sweating like a pig. I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. No, you could not. You would die before you got that thing all into your intestines. Pigs don't sweat. But we were, or you're killing me, Smalls. No, you're not. You're just kind of annoying. But these communicate emotions. If I'm just like, wow, you're really annoying. That's not as graphic as, you're killing me, Smalls. Or like, man, people have told me a lot. Oh, if ever, I had a quarter for every time somebody told me that I'd be a millionaire. These are, these are all figures of speech that help intensify the emotion I'm feeling. And it becomes more graphic. Simile. Simile is when you're comparing two things that are not alike. It's a resemblance. This thing is kind of like this thing. But they're completely different things but they have something in common. And the key here is understanding the, word, the use of the word like or as. This is the easiest one for us to identify as Americans in our poor, illiterate, poetic minds. Simile is using the words like or as. Now, not every single time you see like or as is a simile. Like, I like ice cream, okay? That's not a simile. That's just bad English. <laughs> That's not a simile. So every single time a simile is there, it will always have like or as, but not every single time you see like or as will it be a simile. So don't let that one deceive you. So you're comparing two things. He is sleeping like a baby. Now, depending on who your baby is, you might think that was a total lie. <laughs> sleeping like a baby. He is fast as a gazelle. And that's used a lot in the Bible, that he, run, he ran like a gazelle. He sped away like a gazelle, which we don't come across gazelles a lot, but they're fast. Okay, so these are similes. It's saying, look, he is not a baby, and he is not a gazelle. Nobody's going to mistake the two. But they do have something in common, the sleeping nature and the, the speed. And so th this is a simile. What they have is something in common. He will be like a tree planted by streams and water. He is not a tree. But what they have in common is that they're firmly rooted. The tree is firmly rooted in the ground next to a stream getting life. The man of God is firmly rooted in the word of God getting life. And that's when, if you read the context, you get that idea of the word of God. Keep me as an apple of your eye. Okay, so not literally that God has an apple in his eye, but that, that that's the focus. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, 
Not that the calamity he's facing is literally a storm, though it could be, but it's like a storm. It feels devastating like a storm. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. He's not calling you to be serpents or doves. He's calling you to be like a serpent, crafty and gentle as a dove. Now, understanding similes are very important because Americans, as much as this is so easy to understand, simile is the easiest, we still read, and Jesus sweat like drops of blood, and we're like, look, he was sweating blood. No, it's a simile, like drops of blood. Look, the Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove. No, like a dove. We See, simile changes the interpretation completely just picking up on that like or ass. And so this is very, this is used a lot. Okay, you saw David when he said, they devour, they're around me, devouring me like lions. They're not literally devouring him like lions. Metaphor. A metaphor is like a simile, except it's not. Okay? A metaphor is more like representation. A simile is saying these two things look like each other, but we know that they're not. A metaphor is saying these two things are each other, but we know that they're not. So if I say he is this, and you're like, that's not, that's, that doesn't make sense, then it's a figure of speech. If you're like, he is a man, you would be like, okay, that makes sense. So it's not a figure of speech. But if I was like, you're a dirty trash can of poop, that you're going to be like, that doesn't make sense. So it's a figure of speech. Yes, it's kind of graphic, but I heard that on the cartoon Happy Feet, and that my kids listen in high school when I use examples like that, okay? Like, I'm trying to teach English to high school kids who do not like English very much, so you've got to use examples that keep their attention. So, so by the way, that's as PG-13 as they get, so I'm not, like, going all over It's a comparison when you say, like, like so in the... Um, so a Jack London book that I read as a kid, and for whatever reason, this line stuck in my head. But he said, he, it said that he sailed his boat into the mouth of a great giant. Well, the mouth was a cave in the side of the mountain. Okay? But he, he sold his, sailed his boat into the cave. That's like, okay, what cave is that? Like, that doesn't feel scary. It could be a big scary cave. It could be a tiny cave, whatever. But the mouth of the great beast, like, oh, that's ominous. That, that communicates something more graphic now. It's more wordy, picturey, that kind of stuff. So this is what it communicates. So the key here is the word to be. It is. They are. That kind of stuff. And even if it doesn't say is or are, it will be assumed. You could probably put it in there, and it would make sense. So my father was boiling mad. I could just say my dad was mad. But if I say boiling mad, you're like, oh my gosh, did you survive? Yes, I did. I'm here. You know that he was ticked, and there was, like, totally uncontrollable. The assignment was a breeze. It wasn't literally a breeze. It didn't, like, fly off my paper and turn into the wind. But we're saying we're, it's more graphic. Like, oh, that was easy. But you're like, oh, it was a breeze. It communicates so much more emotion there. So Yahweh is my shepherd. Yahweh is not literally a shepherd in the field, and you're a lamb. That's not literal. It doesn't make sense. So it's a metaphor, but it communicates something better than Yahweh takes care of me. Yahweh is my shepherd communicates a lot more than just he takes care of me. But you are a shield around me, O Yahweh. Yahweh is not literally a shield. He's not a transformer. But this communicates more than he protects me. Yahweh, my rock, my redeemer. 
Yahweh is not literally a rock. Now remember, the rock here is a mountain, not like a little pebble. But it communicates, rock here communicates protector, it communicates safety, it communicates shield, it communicates provision, it communicates a lot of different ideas of how it's used throughout the Bible. You brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? The Pharisees aren't literally vipers, but he could say, you crappy people, like what are you going to do? You sinful people, but when he says, you brood of vipers, you children of the devil, that's going to communicate a lot more, especially when the first thing that pops in your head as a Jew is the vipers biting and killing the Israelites in the wilderness. That's the image that would probably come into their mind. So those are examples of metaphors. Now, I know I'm going through these quickly, but I can only give you so many examples because you're like, okay, we get the point. The real effort is identifying them. Okay? Right now it's academic. Then you've got to actually identify this and put it on paper. Symbolism. Symbolism is used a lot. Symbolism is when you take an abstract concept and communicate it with a concrete concept. So like love. Love is abstract. You can't taste, touch, hear, see any love. Okay, you can't say, here, I've got some love in my hand. Do you want to pet it and see it? Okay, you, you can't do that. When you say, oh, look at them, they're in love. You can't actually see love going between the two of them. Okay, it's, it's an abstract concept. So you use a symbol to represent it, and that's like a heart. What would be a symbol of liberty? You can't see liberty. You can't touch it. You can't feel it. I know the same thing. That's synonymous. The American flag, Liberty Bell, right? Luck. Horseshoe, statue, clover, that kind of stuff. Okay, so we use symbols to represent something else, to communicate an abstract idea in a concrete, tangible way. This is very beneficial when you're teaching little children, as, and it's used a lot in Scripture because Scripture is communicating very complicated ideas like redemption and salvation and atonement and sin and that kind of stuff. So the rebels raised the right white flag. If you're in America, you automatically know what that means. Why is surrender? A white flag. So you could say, well, they surrendered. But what does that look like? But if they're raising the white flag, that communicates a greater sense of desperateness on their part. He gave her red roses for their anniversary. You say, well, he loved her on their anniversary, but he gave her red roses, and you're like, oh, okay. It communicates a lot more romance. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. These are symbolic of something. Okay, he could say, like, there's life and there's knowledge, but a tree communicates fruit and productivity, and and interacting with it, and growing it, and eating it, and all kinds of stuff. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, it doesn't literally mean that Jesus is a star and a scepter. It's communicating symbolically. Now, in this case, symbolism can also be a metaphor. can also be a metaphor. Some of these can double-team on each other. So the star represents victory. The star in the ancient world was often used as a symbol of dominance and victory. It was the Venus. It was, and then they thought Venus was a star back then. That's why it's called a star. But Venus was the first star to rise up in the morning. It was the brightest star. And it was usually associated with power and enlightenment and that kind of stuff. And so he's saying is this is going to be the ultimate victor. Scepter is a ruler. Power. Ruling through dominance and authority. 
And so this is a symbol used of the king. And Yahweh said, remove the filthy garments from him. Behold, I have taken away your iniquity. He could say, hey, he's not a sinner anymore. I've forgiven him. But when you say remove his filthy garments, that communicates his sin and his filth and his defilement even more. And now we don't just have a sinner. We have somebody who's been defiled. It's more graphic. The great dragon was hurled down the ancient serpent called the devil. I could just say, oh, the bad guy was destroyed. But when I say the dragon was hurled down, that is way more graphic of how scary Satan really is, how destructive he is, how abnormal and terrifying and unlike anything creation he is, that kind of stuff. So the symbolism is creating a whole, and in this sense, the symbolism paints a thousand words. That's the beauty of symbolism. A metaphor communicates a few words. Simile communicates a few, but symbolism can communicate a whole host of words. Hyperbole. Hyperbole is a rhetorical exaggeration. But mom, everyone's doing it. Okay? We hate and love hyperboles. Because we use hyperbole a lot, but we hate it when other people use them with us. Because we're like, no, you're being unrealistic. I've always noticed that with people. They get so annoyed when other people use hyperboles, but then they use hyperboles and love them. Like, so, hyperbole, an exaggeration to say more than what is really literally meant. Okay, my suitcase weighs a ton. It does not weigh 2,000 pounds. You would have never made it out the door. Okay, but it's an exaggeration for how I, you can say my suitcase is heavy. That could be so relative. Okay, my little girl picks up my backpack. She's like, this is so heavy. I'm like, no, it's not. Okay, but if you say it weighs a ton, then it says to me, it is a lot for you. It's not just heavy, it's overwhelming. I am so hungry I could eat a horse. We already talked about this one. Okay, that's not literal. But you could just say, I'm hungry. I feel like Mexican. Or you could be like, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. My favorite hungry statement ever was, I was at the buffet, the Asian star buffet on 161, which I absolutely love. We were at Asian Buffet, and there was these college students behind me in line. And the one college student goes, I'm so hungry, I'm just going to eat until I hate myself. <laughs> I was like, that is the best slogan for a buffet I've ever heard in my life. I am worn out from my groaning all night long. I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. There's no way. He'd be so dehydrated. Okay. <laughs> You'd be dead, so in a prune. So there's, but it's an exaggeration. You get this sense like I was sad and I just cried a lot last night. That is not as graphic as my couch is drenched and I'm worn out. Every one of them could sling stones at a hair and not miss. Now I had one student one time was like, "How's that a hyperbole?" I've seen lots of people hit rabbits a lot of times, and I was like, "No, this is a different kind of a hair." That's a hyperbole. I doubt that a slinger could hit a hair on your head and not like miss every single time. But the point is they're really good. You can say, wow, they're really good. Or man, every single time they aim for the hair, they did not miss it. So that's a hyperbole. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. God isn't, Jesus is not literally saying you have to hate your parents in order to become a Christian. He's saying that, relatively speaking, you must love me to the point that it looks like you don't care about your parents. Basically, the main idea is, if you had to choose between me and your parents, you're going to choose me. 
Your parents should never be greater than me. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Christ did not mean that literally, or we would all be limbless. Okay? So, it's a hyperbole of how far you should go to deal with sin. He should say, you should just do lots of things to get rid of sin, anything. But if he says, gouge out your right eye if necessary, that communicates the extremes even more. Personification gives human characteristics or actions to inanimate objects. So the little toaster, okay, the TV show, the movie Cars, okay, all these things where you make things come alive that are not really meant to be alive. The flowers danced in the gentle breeze. Okay, flowers are not getting down to techno music. The fire swallowed the entire forest. Okay, I can see the fire burned the forest down, or it swallowed it is way more graphic. So it's, I'm making it look like it's real. Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public square. Wisdom has no voice. In this case, it's symbolism because of she, and it's also personification because wisdom doesn't do things like that. The mountains and hills will burst into songs before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. That's, that's, that's um, personification. They don't really do that. The land mourns and the olive oil laments. Okay, these things don't cry, but it paints a picture that the land has been devastated by the exile. Devastated by the exile. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Death does not, is not a king. The rules over creation is personified. But you can say, hey, death has been around for a long time. Or you can say, death has reigned over us. That's far more graphic. Now, the last one is zoomorphism. This is the one your teachers never told you about. Zoomorphism is when you give Yahweh or humans and you make them out to be like animals. So it's similar personification where you're taking inanimate objects and making them look human. Now you're taking Yahweh and humans and making them look to be animals. And this is used a lot because animals are, there's a huge variety of animals in our creation around us. And they can communicate a lot of different ideas about people. So she buzzed around the kitchen. And that's an animal characteristic. But you can say, oh, she was moving through the kitchen a lot. But she buzzed around. That gives you more of a picture of that, like, dun, 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 like that jerky, zigzagging, distracted kind of a busyness. Hide me, O Yahweh, under the shadow of your wings. Yahweh does not have wings. But you could say, oh, protect me and gather me in with your arms, God. But that's not as graphic as a mother bird who puts her wings over her young and like protects them from the rain. And so there's an animal characteristic there. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. You could say, man, he flew through the sky. That would be a type of a metaphor, but not as graphic as wings and like a bird. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by people. Now, this is a metaphor. Remember, metaphor can often do double duty with a lot of other things. Metamor metaphor is very broad. So in this sense, he's saying he is a worm, but we know that he's not. But it's also zoomorphism because he's communicating animal characteristic, that he's the lowliest of the lowly. And the God uses the word worm of humans a lot in the Bible. And it's very interesting that he will call you his most precious, most loved thing. 
but also at the same time call you worm. It depends whether you're totally embracing your sin nature or whether you're trying to connect to him or not. And so these are figures of speech. If you understand the purpose of Psalms, it's about emotions, then you can understand parallelism and figures of speech and why they're being used because they're communicating that emotion. If you can understand that these are the types of Psalms, four, these are the types of parallelism, three, and though I can go through tons and tons and tons of figures of speech, these are by far the majority of them, these six, I think they were. This will give you a good idea of how to go through the Psalms. Like I said, we're not going through the Psalms verse by verse because I don't think that's really necessary. This is not narrative. There's nothing really complicated theology in there. I just wanted you to understand the purpose of Psalms and the, the ability to identify the types of Psalms and then kind of how the author is using the language, parallelism and figures of speech. And if you do this sheet and kind of practice, and I think you'll find once you start practicing, you start reading the Psalms, at first it might feel a little academic as you're reading the Psalms and you're like, okay, I got to identify, like, is this a lament? Is it, what parallelism here? But I think as you find, as you read, and especially as you pray over these, it will become easier and easier to you. And then all of a sudden the Psalms will have more meaning and more power. Because remember, the guy who's writing this is writing this with intentionality of parallelism and figures of speech and the type of psalm. He's writing to a community who already got this. They grew up getting this kind of stuff. We are, some of us are a disadvantage because of the culture that we were born in. Some of you are already gifted in this way. So some of you will pick this up. It's interesting that when I do some really academic things, like my students, like when I do observations and very technical stuff of like exegesis and hermeneutics, some of my kids love it. And the other kids hate it. And then I get to the poetry stuff, and the kids who hated the first thing now love this, and the kids who like love that now, it becomes this flipped, and you get the idea. And sometimes they, it's, they love both or they hate both. But generally I see a flipping that happens when we move from observations and exegesis and that kind of stuff, and then we move into this and learn this kind of stuff. And it's interesting who starts getting fired up and excited and who now loses their energy and that detailism and that kind of stuff. I think for most of us, though, you will find that maybe for some of us to struggle. But remember, I am the dunce when it comes to English. I have a learning disability. I have a minor form of dyslexia. I have a reading comprehension issue. I've always struggled with this. Like, language is my big weaknesses. And I learned to recognize this stuff and actually begin to enjoy it and now kind of thrive in it. And if I am coming from a learning disability and can move into that, then don't beat yourself up too much if you're struggling with this. You, anybody can get this eventually. Now, some of us will master it more than others because we're just gifted in that area. But anybody can get it to a certain point because it's just the way God wired us as humans. And we speak with figures of speech a lot of times in our life and we don't even realize it. That's the other thing I did. I got a bunch of video clips from a bunch of movies like Tombstone and firefighting movies and Star Wars, and I just found tons of figures of speech. And kids are like, nobody talks like this. And for an entire class period, I just showed them clip after clip after clip, and I had them identify the figures of speech, Princess Bride, like all kinds of movies. And they're just like, oh, my gosh, they're everywhere. I'm like, yeah. And those are just the one clip that I found, and I went... I just went to the first clip I found in Batman and copied it and put it on there. The first clip I found in Princess Bride. There's like so many more, too. And they begin to realize, wow, this is much a part of our vocabulary. 
and they were good at it and didn't even realize it, so to speak. I think you'll find as you begin to practice this and work at it, it'll start becoming more natural, and then all of a sudden the psalms will become powerful. They'll become meaningful, and you might even find yourself doing it in your own prayers, and that's the goal. Ultimately, the goal is to understand what is being communicated in the psalms so that you can translate in your own life and pray more honestly, more open, more emotional, more free with God. And the more you do that, the better your relationship becomes with Him, and the, the more you meet Him and He meets you. And that's the whole point of Psalms. And the, obviously a lot of this, the, not the types of Psalms, but the parallelism and the figures of speech, that all translates into the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, the prophets, and in many locations in the narratives. Like when God says, let us create man in our own image, or um, Genesis 3.15, when he's judging the, them in the poetic form. And, and so it shows up in the narrative, too, and that kind of stuff. So hopefully it'll help you in all those books as well. So Yahweh, we just thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that when we live in a culture that celebrates emotions to the extreme of like ignoring logic and reason and just living and making decisions by our emotions, at the same time we condemn people for the way that they feel and make them feel bad or guilty, you do neither. You're not a God that is ruled by your emotions. You do not make decisions by your emotions. Yet you are a God who is very emotional. You express them, you embrace them, and you connect to us with them. And you're a God that is not ashamed, offended, or angry at our emotions. You're a God that wants us to bring them to you, and you will deal with them. And then you have created your, you exist as an emotional God, and you've created us to be emotional so that we may connect to you and we may connect to others. I pray that you help us embrace the tension of how important emotions are. They're real. They show us and tell us what we're feeling and what is wrong and what is right with us, but also how to control them, how to surrender them to you, or better, yes, more importantly, how to surrender to you, how to give them over to you so that you can shape our emotions, guide us in your truth as we feel, and make us understand why we're feeling what we're feeling so we can come to your truths. You are the God who created us, emotions, and relationships. You're the God that created prose and logic and reason as well as poetry. And I pray that you step in our lives and give us the ability to understand our emotions, to understand our poetry, to bring them together, and may our prayers and our relationship and our connection with you be more authentic. In Jesus' name, amen.